Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new shorter series with James Jordan on the topic of biblical worldview. In this first talk, he's going to introduce the world of Eden and show how God's plan with the earth is to heavenize it and how that task is given to us as well. We really hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan giving us a biblical worldview and discussing the world of Eden. In this series of lectures, we're concerned with the topic of biblical worldview and how it is set out in the Bible and how it develops in the Bible. There's a great interest in Christian worldview today, and there's a lot of literature available on the subject. But virtually all of this material deals with specific social and political issues. The few books that do take up a systematic worldview generally do so from a philosophical standpoint rather than opening the Bible and looking at how the Bible sets it forth. The Bible does not generally discuss things in terms of philosophy, but rather in terms of imagery. And we have to translate biblical imagery into the language of philosophy in order to come up with a philosophical worldview. There is a great deal of value, however, in looking at the Bible's own worldview models set out in the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in various visions. And it's our purpose in these lectures to scratch the surface of this topic because it's vast and very detailed and at least become somewhat familiar with biblical worldview models. We'll have to be selective. There's no way we can be comprehensive. But we will uh, look at several worldview models that the Bible has and hopefully it'll make us better able to understand the scriptures themselves and the world as God has designed it for man. Today, in this first lecture, we're concerned with the world of Eden, or the creation of the world, the original world design. And with that in mind, we need to look at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we find the statement, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if we were to make a diagram of that, then we would have to put a box above with the word heaven in it and some type of box below with the word earth in it because they're two different things and we know quite clearly that the heavens are above the earth in terms of imagery. The earth, we're told, was without form and was empty and it was dark. And during the six days that followed, God took the world from formlessness to form and shape and he took it from emptiness to populated and he took it from darkness to light. He initiated that project in one week, and then he gave it to man to finish up. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God called the light day. Now, if we look at verse 6, the work of the second day, we find something very interesting and very significant for biblical worldview concerning heaven. Then God said, let there be a firmament, sometimes translated expanse, in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated the waters that were below the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament, and it was established. And God called the firmament heaven. 
Now that's what's of importance to us right now because that establishes that there are two heavens. There is the highest heavens that God made right at the beginning, his home and the home of the angels. And then there is the heaven within the earth. And the heaven within the earth uh, is an image of the highest heaven. That's why it's called heaven. They're both called heaven. And that establishes an analogy between the two. The firmament heaven is a copy or is at least an image in some sense of the highest heaven. And the things that are put in the earthly heaven then are, we are to understand them as emblems of the things that are contained in the highest heaven. Now what is this firmament? The firmament uh, is sometimes regarded by conservatives as the atmosphere that separates the clouds above or the waters above. However, in the Bible, the firmament is not, uh, is not something invisible. It's something visible. And it really just refers to the blue sky. Uh, we need to understand that the Bible is not written in the language of modern science. It's very relevant to modern science, but it's not written in the language and vocabulary of modern science. And we can't try to go to Genesis chapter 1 and push our categories into it. We have, must rather allow the Bible itself to give us its categories and then try to work, those, uh, work with those in coming to modern problems. Psalm 104, verse 2, says that God covers himself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a curtain. Well, here again, the idea of... The word firmament means a flattened out uh, object, and here it says the heaven is stretched out like a curtain. So, the idea in the scripture is that the firmament is something you see. It's the blue sky. And there is some type of waters above that, uh, which probably refers to the, the ocean that was placed in the highest heaven and that we see in, in the book of Revelation, the sea that's before the throne of God. And then there are the waters that are below it. But we don't need to, we can't concern ourselves with all those details in these tapes. The point to see here is that the blue sky, or the black sky of night, is a heaven. And when we look at it, we are seeing uh, an image of the highest heaven. So, we have two heavens, the one as a copy of the other. Now let's go on and look at what is done in the earth itself. The earth uh, as God originally created it, includes this firmament heaven. See, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then we start talking about the earth, and within the earth there is this firmament heaven that's an image of the highest heaven. And the things in the firmament heaven, such as birds and stars, are reminders of things that are in the highest heaven, such as angels and cherubim. Well, then in verse 9, we see, Let the waters below heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And that was established. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. Two things for us to notice here. One is that <clears throat> the waters are below the land. Uh, we're told again in Psalm 104 that the waters were originally above the mountains. And of course in the flood uh, they returned to be above the mountains. 
It says in verse 6, Thou dost cover it with the deep as with a garment. This is probably referring to the creation, although perhaps to the flood, but it can go either way because uh, the, fl- the flood was just a return to the original state of the earth covered with water. Thou dost cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. Mountains arose. Valleys sank down to the place that thou didst establish for them. And thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. All right. Uh, The mountains rose up and the valleys sank down. But the water is below the earth. And this gives us a a three-story universe or a three-story world. And there's no reason to be embarrassed about that. It's quite obvious if you step outside. The sky is above. The the ground is in between dry ground. And below uh, the ground is water. Water uh, always seeks the lowest level. And if you look at the way that the world is set out, you'll see that the land is in the midst of the water and not vice versa. Uh, There is only one ocean in the world, and it's continuous, and it runs throughout the entire world. And then there are scattered islands called continents on the world, poking out of the water. It could be the other way around, you see. We could have one continuous landmass in the world with isolated lakes of water, but that's not what we have. We have water at the foundation, so to speak, if we look at it visually and phenomenally. Uh, if we just look at it with our eyes, the water is below, and then there's the land, and then there, th- there is the heaven, the firmament heaven. So, the land appears, and God calls the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he calls seas. Well, uh, this word earth is the word in Hebrew, Eretz, which means an orderly cosmos. There's another word in Hebrew, Adamah, which means ground in the sense of raw material that man is made from. Adam is made from Adamah, the raw material. But in Genesis 1, the word is Eretz, which means an ordered cosmos. And God's whole design in making the earth was to make an ordered, structured place for man to live in and for man to have dominion over. Now, this, what Genesis 1 is doing is giving us a relationship between heaven and earth, and it's a relationship that uh, continues to function in the biblical worldview throughout, and we need to become familiar with it, and diagram one in your notebook uh, shows this. Uh, Heaven is above the earth, earth is below the heaven, and we can anticipate that that means that heaven is to rule the earth, and that is the case. Heaven is the pattern for the earth, and heaven is to rule the earth. And if we look at Genesis chapter 1 again, in verse 14, we see, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And then in verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He put them in the firmament of the heavens. That is, they are visible in the curtain of the firmament. And they governed the day and the night, separating light from darkness. Now, that means that the things that are in the heavens are the governors of the things that are on the earth. The things that are in the heavens are the rulers of the things that are on the earth. 
This is symbolized by the sun, moon, and stars that govern time on the earth. But later on in the Bible, the sun, moon, and stars become symbols for rulers and powers, those who are positioned above other people. Um, This is common in the modern world. If you look at the flag of the United States, there are 50 stars for the 50 states. It's a symbol of government. If you go to the, uh, the countries of the, even today, of the Near East, the Arabic countries, they all have moons on them, moons and stars, symbols of their government. And the Bible uses this repeatedly in prophecy. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 13, there is a prophecy against Babylon. And in Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 10, uh, Isaiah prophesies against the rulers of Babylon, and he uses this imagery of sun, moon, and stars. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. And then he says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth with their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Now this is referring to the rulers of Babylon. And the rulers of Babylon are figuratively positioned in the heavens. That's important for us to see. When the Bible talks about the heavens and the earth, Sometimes it's talking about the literal cosmos that we live in. But sometimes it's talking about the political cosmos that we live in. We have to be sensitive to the context. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the sun and the moon, it's talking about the sun and the moon that we see in the physical cosmos. But sometimes when the Bible talks about the sun and the moon, it's talking about the political order of things. So to return, we see that here. We see it again in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. Talking about Edom, Isaiah says, all the hosts of heaven will wear away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will wither away. As the leaf withers from the vine, as one withers from a fig tree. Well, the host of heaven and the sky that's rolled up, the hosts of them are the rulers of Edom. See, they're positioned in the heavens. The heavens rule the earth. The heavens set a pattern for the earth. The things that are in the heavens are the governors of the things that are on the earth. And so while sometimes in the Bible reference to the heavens and to the sun and the moon and stars is literal or cosmic, sometimes on the other hand it's political. In Amos chapter 8, Amos is talking about the fall of the northern northern Israel, Samaria. And he says in chapter 8 verse 9, I will make the sun go down at noon, and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Well, the sun refers to the rulers, and the earth refers to the people, and both will go down together. And one other passage I can read to you, talking about the political structure of the heavens and the earth, is Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, speaking of the destruction of Egypt. Talking about Egypt, God says, When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens. Darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud. The moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. It refers to the destruction of their government, of their governing powers. So the relationship between heaven and earth is that of pattern and copy, or that of ruler and ruled. Now look at the diagram, and we'll see that we've got this set out. 
The highest heaven is the pattern, and the firmament heaven is a copy of it. And the Bible will associate stars with angels, and it will associate birds with heavenly powers, especially with the Holy Ghost. The dove will become a symbol for the Holy Ghost. And other things that are in the heavens, the sun in Psalm 19 will be a picture of the Messiah. And so these lights in the heavens will be figures for things in the highest heaven. But heaven is supposed to be brought to the earth as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God wants us to know what's in heaven and then reproduce that pattern on the earth. And that's what the Garden of Eden was all about. In the Garden of Eden, God set up a little heaven model on the earth for man to study and to help him get started in his task of heavenizing the world. So, in summary, what we've said about the heavens and the earth is that there are two heavens in Genesis 1. The highest heaven is invisible to our eyes, and it's beyond our time and space. It's not really above uh, in any literal sense. And then there is the firmament heaven, which is an image of the highest heaven. Then there is also the earth, which is to be made after the order of heaven and is to be governed from heaven. And this sets up not only cosmic imagery, but also political imagery in the Bible. And finally, there is the sea, which is below the earth. Now, diagram two gives us a picture, a cross-section picture of this world, with the firmament above, the land, and then the sea below the land. Now, in Genesis chapter one, that's as far as it goes because there had been no fall. But after the fall of man, after the fall of the angels and the rebellion of the angels and men, which takes place after the first week, we know that because it says uh, in verse 31, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was all very good. So Satan hadn't fallen by that time. After the fall of Satan, God creates one other environment, and we're not told exactly when he did it or much about it, but it's called the abyss. Uh, Sheol or the abyss and the Bible refers to it numerous times and it is it corresponds to the highest heavens Uh, it is hell and the Bible uses the sea many times the ocean as a symbol for the abyss so in order to get our complete world picture together uh, we want to see that the firmament heavens point to the highest heavens And after the fall of man, the restless, turbulent sea points to the powers of hell. David Chilton provides a good summary of this in his book, The Days of Vengeance. And I'll just read a few, uh, a short passage from that book on page 244. He says, The Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint, first uses the term abyss in Genesis 1, verse 2, speaking of the original deep and darkness which the spirit creatively overshadowed and metaphorically overcame. The abyss is the farthest extreme from heaven. Genesis 49:25, Deuteronomy 33:13. It's the farthest extreme from the high mountains. Psalm 36 verse 6. The abyss is used in scripture as a reference to the deepest parts of the sea. In Job 28:14, Job 38:16, in Psalm 33, 7. 
and it's used as a reference to the subterranean rivers and vaults of water in Deuteronomy 8, 7 and Job 36, 16. Now, that's enough references there uh, to establish that the abyss is related to the sea the same way the highest heavens are related to the firmament heavens. And so we can come up with a model of the world that has uh, that is complete and if you want to glance ahead, the diagram number six uh, shows the relationship among all these things. But before we can get to that, we have to move on to discuss the Garden of Eden. There are four things we want to say about the Garden of Eden. The first is to discuss very briefly its location. It's clear that in Genesis chapter 2, the location of the Garden of Eden was concerned, was of concern to the author of the text. The location is given in terms of four rivers, two of which are known today as the Tigris and the Euphrates. This is in Genesis 2, uh, verses 10 to 15. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers flowing out from Eden. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Well, we know where Havilah is. It's Arabia. The gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone of air. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush, which, again, we know where that is. It's the land of Ethiopia. The rest of the Bible establishes that. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, uh, when God created the world, these countries had not been named. Uh, but later on, when Moses wrote this up, then he, he gives us names that correspond to later parts of Scripture, and this tells us where the Garden of Eden was located. It has to be located in some place where rivers flowing out from it can go down toward uh, eastern Africa, as well as into Western Asia. Now, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, the location of God's dwelling is said to be in the north. And this is also found in Psalm 48, verse 3, which says that Mount Zion is the elevated holy mountain in the far north. And as we shall see, this is definite Garden of Eden uh, language. Based on this, it seems very likely that the Garden of Eden was located somewhere around the Black Sea area because uh, of the location of the rivers. And if you look at diagram number three, you'll see a map that shows this. The uh, Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea and all the rest, and then where Eden probably would be located uh, in order to provide these rivers in the world before the flood. Of course, the flood changed the world, and it changed the way that the rivers ran. It's possible that the Pishon River Valley um, is preserved in the Jordan River Valley, as you can see from the diagram. And it's possible that the Gihon River Valley is preserved in the Nile, although it's flowing in the opposite direction in our modern world. But the flood, of course, changed the world. 
It is interesting that if the Garden of Eden was located uh, where I have it drawn, then that is roughly the same place that the ark landed when the world was restored after the flood. And so the, the new beginnings would have taken would have the new beginnings would have taken place in the same place, the same location as the original world. That makes sense to me. It's not something that we can be terribly dogmatic about. Now, one of the reasons that I've included this map is to show that the Garden of Eden really existed and there were real rivers flowing out from it and they really flowed uh, in some ways in roughly the same direction. The Tigris and Euphrates are parallel to one another. And yet, beyond the fact that Eden was a real place with real rivers winding out of it, it was also a symbolic pattern for the world. We can picture the Garden of Eden uh, symbolically and we'll look to that in just a minute. Before we do, we need to establish uh, that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. It's very important for us to understand the mountain theme in connection with the Garden of Eden because rivers flow downhill and Eden was the original holy mountain of God where a man was found. Ezekiel chapter 28 Verses 13 and 14 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, in terms of the biblical worldview, we need to add this holy mountain to our diagram, and we will. The mountain is a high place that man can go up to in order to see into heaven. And the holy mountain is symbolized in the ancient world by a pyramid or a ladder to heaven. And throughout the Bible, important things, uh, especially heavenly things, take place on mountains. And we can just we could trace the mountain theme through the Bible. It was on Mount Moriah that Abraham took Isaac and sacrificed him, although God prevented him from doing so. It was also on Mount Moriah that David saw the Lord ready to destroy Jerusalem and made atonement through sacrifice. It was on Mount Moriah that Solomon built the temple. But before that, it was on Mount Sinai that Moses had received the law of God. It was on Mount Carmel that Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. Jesus preached a sermon on the mount. It was on the mountain of transfiguration, which Peter calls the holy mountain in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, that Christ revealed his glory. So, and it was on mountain, a mountain that Jesus was crucified, Calvary. So, all of these are images of a high place. Moses went up on the mountain and God showed him the pattern of heavenly things. And Moses brought those down the mountain and built it in the tabernacle. The mountain is a place where man can stand and approach God. Now, we don't have to go to literal mountains for that, but this is symbolism, and it pictures man's position above the world. We'll come back to man in a few minutes. But the importance of the mountain theme is that it puts man above everything else in the world and having dominion over everything else. It's man who climbs to the top of the mountain and there communes with God who is in heaven. And then he brings the heavenly influences back down the mountain. 
when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he cast the demon out of the boy. When Moses came down from the mountain, he brought with him God's word down to the people. And so there really is an importance to mountaintop experiences. And this is part of the way God has designed the world. Now, thirdly, in addition to the mountain aspect of Eden, there are the rivers. The rivers flow out from Eden to water these various lands. Now, Genesis chapter 2 does not say this, but the rest of the Bible does when it talks about the four corners of the earth, that these rivers metaphorically are flowing to the four corners of the earth. Eden is, symbolically at least, in the center of the world. It's the high mountain in the center of the world, the highest place. And the heavenly influences flow down to Eden and there flow out to the four corners of the world. And this is pictured for us in diagram number four, where we have a non-literal but rather symbolic picture of the Garden of Eden. And the rivers flow into the four corners of the earth. The Bible repeatedly speaks of the four corners of the earth. And it's part of the biblical imagery for worldview. Now we, now we can put all this together in diagram number five. There we see the, the land, the Eretz, the ordered cosmos, uh, uh, symbolized as a square with four corners. And we see the rivers flowing out from God's holy mountain to the four corners of the world. The mountain would be the Garden of Eden, where man stands, and the heavenly influences come down and go out to the four corners of the earth, which is surrounded by the ocean. And this is a, an accurate symbolic picture of the world. The important thing for us to understand is, it, is that it's a biblical picture of the world. The Bible speaks in terms of the mountain at the center of the earth. The Bible talks about the rivers flowing out from God's throne on that mountain. In uh, uh, Ezekiel 47 and in Zechariah 14 and in Revelation 22, the river flows out and down to water uh, the garden and then to water the entire world to the Gentiles and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the very four corners of it. And these influences proceed down from heaven and onto the earth. And that leads us to the fourth observation about the Garden of Eden, and that is it was designed to be a little bit of heaven on the earth. Because it was on a mountain and on a high place, and because it was a place where God started off the pattern of heavenization, Eden was like a little piece of heaven too. And that will be important for us when we get to the tabernacle and the temple because uh, these buildings were, were heaven models, both heaven and earth models. And the question that will come is, how come there's a heaven model on the earth? Well, the answer is it goes back to the Garden of Eden, which was a heaven model on the earth. And in a sense, we have three heavens now. Uh, this is not the language that's actually found in Genesis 2, but it's something that we have to deduce from what's going on. We have the highest heaven. We have the copy of that heaven in the firmament. And then we have another copy of that heaven in the Garden of Eden. Because man's task is to make the earth after the model of heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Man's project is to heavenize the earth. And God gets us started by giving us the Garden of Eden. If we look back at diagram number one, we see that 
in that there's a pattern in the highest heaven, there's a copy in the firmament heaven, and then you see on the world itself that heaven pattern is copied out again. Only man is privileged to be the agent of heavenizing the earth. Well, that brings us finally in this first lecture to a discussion of man. Man is God's agent of glorification. Man is made to transform the world from glory to glory, to take hold of it and break it down and remake it after the image of heaven. Now, it's important for us to understand right off the bat that when I say that earth is to become a copy of heaven, I don't mean in some slavish sense in the way uh, tracing paper is put over a picture and then copied out without any originality at all. What we are given, when we see into heaven, what we see is symbolic patterns of things, and particularly moral and ethical patterns. But we also see artistic patterns. Uh, when we look into heaven, in the book of Revelation, we see certain artistic patterns of worship, uh, falling down before God, certain beautiful glories and colors and other things. And these are helpful to us as we contemplate making the world after the image of heaven. But man himself, as God's image, is to have an in, a creative input in this heavenizing process. And we see this in the fact that the Garden of Eden is a heaven model, and so is the tabernacle, and so is the temple, and yet they're not identical one to another. The temple was not, did not look like the tabernacle, and the tabernacle didn't look like the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel's visionary temple didn't look like Solomon's temple. Yet each one of them is an earthly copy of the heavenly model. And so man has input into making the earth after heaven, and we, uh, it's a creative project. It's not just slavish copying. It's a copying of principle rather than of uh, specific details. Now, a man was put in the Garden of Eden, and his tasks were to dress it and to guard it. It says in verse 15 of chapter 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, or to dress it and to guard it, we could say. The cultivating or dressing of the garden was man's kingly task of beautifying and glorifying the garden. And God would get him started. God brought animals to him to help him. God gave him a wife to help him. Uh, and God gave him the patterns and other things, the trees and everything else planted there to show him what to do. And Adam, as he learned how to cultivate the garden and to beautify it and make it more and more beautiful, would then begin to go downstream and his sons would go down the rivers and extend the, the Edenic heaven pattern over the entire earth, generation after generation. And man's glorious, wonderful project would be to heavenize the earth and to take it from its raw material condition into a beautiful world. He would go from garden to city, from the Eden to the Jerusalem of God. The Bible opens in Genesis 2 with the garden of Eden, the raw material, the basic pattern, and it ends in Revelation 22, giving us a vision of the world completely transformed, beautified, and glorified as a result of the work of man. Now, of course, Adam failed to do that work and it remained for Jesus Christ to do it and put us back on track. But the fact is, it's still man's work. It's not in the first Adam, it's in the second Adam, but it is man's work to glorify the world, just as it's God's work to glorify men. 
Well, how did Adam fail? Well, he failed not because he didn't try to beautify the garden, uh, but because he failed to guard it. The word keep means guard. It's unfortunate that modern translations continue to use this word keep. Uh, If you think about old English, you'll realize that keep does mean guard. In fact, a keep is a fortress. And keeping means to guard. And it's very clear in Hebrew. um, The Lord is thy keeper should be the Lord is thy guardian. Keep the law. Uh, We think of keeping the law as obeying it, and that's part of it. But the biblical idea of keeping the law is broader than just obeying it. It also means to guard the law. That is, to defend it and uphold it. uh, Or to keep the commandments. Well, Adam was to keep or guard the garden. And so God brought Satan to him to test him out on that. And man failed to guard the garden. And he lost his responsibility there. God put cherubim to guard the garden during the Old Covenant. And it wasn't until Jesus came along that man was once again given the keys of the kingdom and once again entitled to guard the garden. That was man's priestly task, to guard the garden by guarding his heart and always worshiping God. That he failed to do. Well, let's look at diagram number six here in closing. And we can see the world in cross-section. There are dotted lines separating the world from the highest heaven at the top and the abyss at the bottom. And this is a three-decker vision of the cosmos. There's no reason to be ashamed or afraid of a three-decker vision of the cosmos as long as we understand that this is not intended to be a literal description of the universe that we live in. And nobody ever thought it was. The Jews in the ancient world and just about everybody else knew that the world was round. They knew that you couldn't go up on a high mountain and actually go into God's heaven. They knew that you couldn't dig a hole in the ground and actually go down into hell. They knew that this was a symbolic world picture because they lived with symbolism all the time. Our problem is we're not very used to symbolism and so we tend to misinterpret things that were very clear to them. They clearly knew the distinction between a symbolic picture of the world and the actual world that was out there. Uh, Something that's been helpful to me in understanding that is a comment C.S. Lewis makes about medieval maps. He says, if you look at the maps that that come down to us from the Middle Ages, they look ridiculous. Uh, Everything is out of proportion. Uh, The geography is wrong. You couldn't possibly sail anywhere using those maps. But he says, the fact of the matter is, those maps were never anything but symbolic Uh, artistic pieces. That's why they're so pretty. That's why people get those old maps and put them on their walls. They were always designed uh, as pretty pictures and symbols. The real maps that navigators used were jealously guarded secrets. The Portuguese did not want anybody else getting hold of their maps because they didn't want anybody else to find out where their places were. And sailors had very accurate maps of the world that, that they sailed by and uh, they, didn't, they resembled modern maps. But the fact is they were kept secret. The maps that were made public were just artistic productions. They were symbolic pictures of the world, and that's why they always had the Garden of Eden drawn on them and other things like that. Well, the same is true in Bible times. Uh, we have to think like ancient men and realize that they knew, they knew what the world literally was like, but they also had symbolic world pictures. And I've given what I think is a good summary of the symbolic world picture of the Bible here in diagram 6. You have the highest heaven, and then below that, within the world, you have its image in the firmament heaven. And then, 
you have man positioned at the top of the holy mountain, able to look into heaven and see the pattern, and then come down the mountain and build it on the earth. You have the four rivers flowing out to the four corners of the earth, down the mountain and out to the edge. And then around the earth and below it you have the sea. And then the sea is an image of the abyss, which is not part of the world, uh, but is outside the world in the habitation of dragons. This, then, is the world that God originally made, the original heavens and the earth, the Edenic world. It was populated by man at the top, and God also put trees and animals and precious stones in the Garden of Eden for him to work with. To summarize, then, this first uh, lecture, we've seen that there is the highest heaven, and it is imaged in the firmament heaven, the blue sky, with its things that remind us of heaven. And a man's task is to understand God's heavenly principles and to glorify the world. Adam refused to do that, and in fact he embarked on a project of wrecking the world and making it worse and worse, until finally the flood had to be brought by God to wipe out the first world and make possible a new one. But on the basis of grace and on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the project is back in force. And the rivers flow out from the church of Jesus Christ carrying the gracious influences of the Holy Spirit to the four corners of the earth. Satan is driven back and the world is being taken slowly but surely from glory to glory. And the destiny of a new transformed world is assured. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.